iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store. My entire academic life has been devoted to figuring out tricky ways to get at causality. We kind of say, what if this thing that everybody thinks is so really isn't so? sounds ridiculous, but you see it all the time, people trying to fight against or build up something that they're sure is connected to something else, which it turns out just isn't. The closest thing to a worldview in Freakonomics is that incentives matter. And if you can figure out what people's incentives are, you have a good chance of guessing how they're going to behave. They say money doesn't buy happiness. Wanna bet? between names for white people and names for black people. Maria, Mary, Billy, Becky, Malik, Shamika, Shaquem. You know, Oprah is popular. I don't have to ever have seen a sumo match. I can go in the data and I can tell you that there was rampant cheating going on. When there's an incentive to cheat, a small percentage of people always will. Could students increase their test scores simply by giving them a financial incentive? 50 bucks. You are getting straight A's for me. Yes. We have a crime problem that is out of control. Clear the numbers are dropping. What's not clear is why. The line between, like, economist and criminal is incredibly thin. And what about journalists? It, no line. <laughs> uh, So cool. We give people permission to challenge conventional wisdom and to ask a different kind of question entirely. Total BS, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage this evening's guest moderator, Eugene Hernandez of IndieWire. Hello, everyone. Hello, Apple Store. Uh, thanks for being here. We have a great panel of guests today. Um, I don't think there's ever been a larger uh, group of filmmakers on this stage all at once, so let me just start naming off some names and we'll get them up here. Uh, Producer Chris Romano, come to the stage. Producer Dan O'Meara, come to the stage. Producer Chad Troutwire. Writer Stephen Dubner. Filmmaker Eugene Jarecki. Filmmaker Alex Gibney. Filmmaker Morgan Spurlock. Filmmaker Heidi Ewing. Filmmaker Rachel Grady and filmmaker Seth Gordon. Dream team, right? We don't feel like filmmakers in these chairs. Only those guys feel like filmmakers. <laughs> this, this was a low budget movie, wasn't it? No I mean, director's chair. Relatively chairs. speaking. That's right. There's, there's, 
don't uh, don't take any uh, meaning by uh, what chair various people are sitting in. Well, except Morgan. We're like on the card table in the kitchen down here. <laughs> it's like it's fine. I can, I can barely like see it. Seth way That's down it. at the end there. Um, this is uh, this is a unique moment because what I find fascinating is that. Um, I don't think, uh, with, with a few exceptions, most of the people on this stage, particularly the filmmakers, actually haven't seen the film that they're here to premiere tonight. Uh, the premiere is taking place tonight at the Tribeca Film Festival at 8 o'clock. Uh, uh, they've all seen, of course, their own segments, but um, many of them have not actually seen uh, the entire film. So I saw it about an hour and a half ago, two hours ago, at a, uh, at a tech screening here at the theater, and um, I have a bunch of questions. Um, and let me start by turning to the man on my right and asking... <laughs> that would be you. Oh, there's a lot of people on my right, but you're the one to my immediate right. Um, Dream Team, tell me how this project came together. Uh, and I'll start with, I'll start with you, uh, Chris, and then we'll, we'll bring in the other producers as well. But why don't you start, and then uh, I'll hand you my microphone. Sure. Well, um Actually, the Dream Team came together before Dan and I were part of the Dream Team. Um, Chad Troutwine had the really amazing vision to put together a film like this with these particular filmmakers. And uh, it was actually Heidi Ewing and Rachel Grady who introduced us to Chad um, a little bit later in the process once uh, things had kind of gotten started. And so uh, I'll hand it off to Chad. Well, Chad, why don't you tell kind of the story of how it came together? Well, that was generous. Um, I will tell you that one of the, the great challenges in doing a, an anthology film is finding the time to share the credit with so many uh, talented filmmakers. The producing team has been spectacular. And although Chris is right, uh, I, I was the, the first person to develop the film, it very quickly became a, a, a truly uh, collaborative effort. Uh, and Chad, let me, let me, what, what was the... What was the the kernel. What was the inspiration? Where did it Where did it start for you? Sure, I'd already invested in uh, uh, at the time eight uh, independent films, all with uh, high profile festival premieres and theatrical releases. I'd never done a documentary film, but what happened is, like many of you, I read Freakonomics and was incredibly moved. And as a as a, a producer, I was struck by three things immediately. One, I thought it was cinematic, and I don't know that it that it's it's obviously cinematic. But it occurred to me that if someone were to make a movie about Freakonomics, it wouldn't be mildly interesting. It would be a must-see, that, that I would have to see that film. Uh, second, uh, I started thinking about it as a, the lens of a producer, and I thought that with the wild uh, popularity of the book, that it might actually make some financial sense. And as an investor, uh, that certainly doesn't uh, trump <laughs> my artistic interests, but it plays an extraordinarily important role in what I pursue. And third, and, and this was, I think, uh, maybe the crucial light bulb for me is, I thought to do this project right, it would follow the vision that Levitt and Dubner developed in the book, which is this amazing collection of seemingly disparate, but ultimately very connected ideas. And what better way to, to draw something together than to put together uh, an omnibus team of, in my mind, what would be the, the greatest team of, of documentary filmmakers ever assembled? Well, it's a great, it's a great team. Um, let me go to Stephen. And um, for those, um, everybody in the audience should have a copy of the book uh, now, do you? Um, for those who haven't read the book, and of course they haven't seen the movie yet, um, this idea of the hidden side of everything. Sort of help, 
help the audience get a foundation for what the, the basic concepts of, not to boil them down to you know, a few moments, but, but this idea of the hidden side of everything and the, and the basic concepts of Freakonomics. Can you sort of give us a, um, a way to, to think about those ideas and then how, you, how, how they've been applied to this movie? Yeah, I, I don't know how to answer. That's a great question. I don't, I don't think I can answer it because it's kind of too hard because there's not, a, there's not a single piece of what the book did that uh, lent uh, any traction to making a good film out of it. It took these people. I mean, I remember uh, when I first met Levitt several years ago, and I sat down in his office in the econ department at the University of Chicago and he began explaining to me the way an economist works with a regression analysis and that you try to establish a causal relationship with all, by tagging all these inputs and outputs and then trying to identify and isolate independent variables and measure them in terms of a, of a, a standard deviation. I immediately thought, God, this material would be great for a film someday. And, uh, and uh, the fact is, is that the book was so incredibly uncinematic that you know, there was no one director, not even Alex Gibney of the Alex Gibney Film Festival this year, <laughs> who, who could do it. So to me, uh, the fact that it, wa- it turned out to be this omnibus format was, on Chad's behalf, a great and very appropriate idea because the book is, like, about nothing. There are just all these little pieces that don't really relate too much to each other. So I think in order to come up with a good idea for a film, the idea there'd be all these great film directors independently making their pieces... Because and it is too late, Stephen. We, are going, we, are, we have made the movie now. It's, it's done, so... I'm still uh, lobbying for... <laughs> Stephen, you just saw it for the first time today. Is that or the, the I final saw it y- yesterday. yesterday. I'm still reeling. You're still. It was scarier it than Jaws. It was funnier than fill in the blank. Yeah, it was really good. <laughs> We're dying to see it, all of us. <laughs> I don't know why. I, I, it was an accident. I it was an accident. I was walking by Times Square, the old peep booths, and I put my quarter in, and there came freaking. <laughs> I don't so let, let me let me ask the filmmakers some questions. I, I would like to have each one um, just give us a, a, a brief description of your segment because we can't see it until eight o'clock tonight for those who haven't seen it i i I think it might we'll start with morgan because your piece starts starts the film um how tell us what it's about specifically and then how how it came about that you chose that or that you had that segment that story to tell yeah um i did the last chapter of the book which is called a rashonda by any other name uh, which is about how does what you name your kid matter what type of impact does it have it examines race, it examines socioeconomic status, and for me as someone who had just had a child, um, I thought it was something that I really wanted to tackle because um, I believe names do matter. I think that people do make snap decisions based on just hearing somebody's name, and to explore that in this film I thought was pretty amazing. Did you have a name consultant in the naming of your child? Uh, I, we did not. You know, I used, we used a family name. Actually, my son's name is Lakin, and it was my great-great-uncle's name, but... Uh, you know, there, there's plenty of other people in the film that are named all kinds of other great names, so people have to wait and see. <laughs> yeah. We talk about winner and loser, of course, that are in, you know, in, in Dubner and Levitt's book and a yeah. lot of other people, so it's, it's great. Okay, so um, we'll go. Uh, Alex, tell us about your, uh, describe to the audience just briefly what your, uh, your piece is. I, I, again, I hate to ask you to summarize it in such a short amount of time, but... Well, it's the heaviest topic of the, uh, of the group here. It's sumo wrestling. Uh, and uh, it was, uh, I was, uh, I've been always infatuated with cheating. Um, and that's what it's about. It's about um, trying to understand in what some believe may be one of the purest sports, it, does cheating exist? And does, is cheating hardwired? 
And so I was really interested in the investigation that they had done in that. And also, I had grown up partially in Japan and loved sumo wrestling. So I thought, why not uh, do a film about uh, big, fat men wrestling in a sand pit? It seemed like an exciting prospect. <laughs> That's not how you pitched it to me. <laughs> Sorry, I was saying that's not how you pitched it to me, actually. Before I ask Eugene to describe his segment, um, so did, did the filmmakers bring their, their pitches, their chapters to you, or were you essentially signing them out? How did that, how did that process work of determining which, which chapters or which stories or, or aspects of the book would be explored, um, and then who would be matched with which sure. issue or idea? And I'll... I'll, I'll start with the, the, the end. Yeah, yeah. How, how we assembled the film had very much to do with the way the, the material played out. And Seth Gordon and Dan O'Meara and Chris Romano were the guiding influences on how we assembled the film. But in the beginning, it, it started in a, in a much more organic way. Before I had even optioned the material, I had just contacted uh, uh, Stephen Dubner and, and Steve Levitt and had not yet optioned the material. I bumped into Morgan Spurlock at an event in Sundance so never underestimate the networking power of these film festivals. And I gave him the idea. And to his immense credit, even with all the different possibilities, he said, yeah, man, I'm in. And, uh, that quickly? Really, yeah, that quickly. And, with, and, and that, that alone sort of gave me the confidence and I think helped attract other filmmakers. Uh -huh. um, once I optioned the material, um, I had this incredible host of possibilities. And I well, went Chad, to, Chad's not giving himself enough credit. I mean, he had just come off. Chad was one of the producers of the film Parachutem. And so he had already worked on a film that had this fantastic ensemble of directors. And so when he pitched me the idea of saying, I want to go and create this dream team of documentary filmmakers, and he started listing the names of all the people that are up on the panel that he wanted to go out to, it's, like, it's, it's impossible to say no to that. Because yeah. it's just it's such a unique experience, such a unique opportunity, that the minute he threw it out there, I was like, that sounds like an incredible thing. I want to be a part of it. Yeah. But I still love that courage. It's, it's, it's pretty rare. There's so many safe... Uh, uh, people out there. We have a fearless team. Uh, th the next move, as I, as I was saying, was to go directly to Alex Gibney, someone I admired immensely. And uh, we, we met in his office. He, he listened intently, uh, immediately made uh, extraordinarily uh, valuable comments. Uh, and in fact, I talked to Alex about maybe having his team and his company produce. And uh, he, he, again, sort of as a confidence builder, he said, no, I, th I think you've, you've got this. Uh, very he said, interesting he said I've got 46 other movies to do right now. <laughs> yeah, that was it. I learned, I learned later. He, had, he didn't have the bandwidth to take on one more film. Um, <laughs> Alex Gibney has three films. You might not might know. <laughs> Alex Gibney has three films playing at the Tribeca Film Festival. And on the opening day of the festival, they, they renamed the festival the Alex Gibney Film Festival. <laughs> the, the, the next step, and, and it, it sort of started to come together very quickly then. We talked about possible filmmakers. I went immediately to Seth Gordon. And for Seth, because of his talent as not only a, a director and and, and editor, uh, he, 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 someone I'd met and knew that he was a, a, a brilliant technician, um, I said, I'd love to have you involved. And so initially, Seth was just going to serve as a producing partner, but it, it eventually we came to trust his filmmaking skills. During that uh, first meeting with Alex, we talked about great filmmakers, and it was Alex who suggested that I meet with Heidi Ewing and Rachel Grady. I'd seen Jesus Camp and loved it, and, and uh, much of it was centered in, in my hometown in suburban Kansas City, Missouri. They were naturals. Uh, we all agreed, and I think maybe Morgan mentioned it first, I think we all agreed that Eugene Jarecki would be a spectacular choice. Um, his, and this, this sounds like, like hyperbole, he is ferociously uh, brilliant. And uh, I, I thought if there's anyone that can handle the intellectual challenge of 
the, the most controversial, uh, most, uh, I, I think, talked about part of the book, yeah. the link to abortion and crime, it was, it was Eugene. And I found out later he'd already been thinking about it. He'd talked to a studio about maybe uh, taking on the film himself. Uh, before I'd even option the material, as I understand it. That's, that, well, that's it's, a, it's a really compelling, and, and that brings us to Eugene. I mean, that's a, it's such a compelling argument or issue, idea that's explored in the segment that, you, that you've directed. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. I mean, for a, f- when I read Freakonomics with, just as a book, and I read it, and it was one of the few books I'd read in, in a very long time where analysis that can usually be very ivory tower and a little bit disconnected from the public... There were elements in that book that were deeply human to me, and the most of all was the argument about crime. And that is an area that I'm focused on in other parts of my work right now. And I was very, when, as it's true what Chad says, I was very moved by that particular chapter, and I had tried to think about doing a, a deeper look at it. And so when this came up, it was actually Morgan who sort of put me into the mix in a more formal way and got me talking to Chad. And I said to Morgan, the one thing I would really, really most die to do, but I'm sure somebody's already taken it on of the directors that are on board is that chapter. And they said, no, oddly enough, I don't think anyone wants to touch it. So Can you explain well, the premise for those who, again, who haven't read sure, the book? You I mean, should at the risk of spoiling, chapter. I mean, it's an amazing chapter read. The first thing I do is you got to read the chapter because the chapter is a much deeper and more faithful analysis of a really remarkable link between why crime fell in the United States in the 1990s at a time where it had been predicted that the streets would be swimming in blood, that America would be in the biggest crime wave in our history. And instead, crime fell precipitously. And the question was why. And uh, Stephen and Steve both came up through this deep analysis that had begun with Steve Levitt and another sort of scientific partner, um, not to uh, under, underestimate what you had done, but they had already been doing this for years, looking at data that really indicated that there was an extraordinary link between whether a child is born to a wanting household, i.e. whether a child is wanted, uh, and whether they grow up to have a life of crime. And the link between wantedness and crime um, raises all kinds of incredibly important questions For those, for example, who oppose abortion, it poses the very difficult challenge that if you oppose abortion, you probably should not be surprised if later on you will be complaining that the people who were not aborted, it's a very crass thing to say, will then be leaning on the social safety net, and you'll be complaining about that. And so it's a very interesting argument that gets thrust into the abortion debate that pits value systems against their own contradictions in a way that I think is deeply interesting. And I think both of them handled it in a way that was non-ideological and simply a really powerful marshalling of information. So I totally destroy that in my 12-minute piece and make it a muddy, <laughs> sentimental plea for uh, Not, common no, sense. You don't, you, you don't at all. It, yeah. it, it ends up, it ends up uh, being a segment that really, really sticks with you. And um, so another aspect of... of youth uh, from a different perspective is what Heidi and Rachel tackle with uh, their segment. Um, tell me about, t- tell us about, tell us what it's about. Well, ours is a little different because actually we, we, we first, um, when Chad proposed this idea to us, um, I did not think it was deeply cinematical by nature. I, was, I said, how the hell are you going to make a movie based on Freakonomics when it's data and things that happened in the past? And, you know, we make observational 
films, cinema verite mainly. So for us, something has to be happening in front of the camera whereby you don't know how it ends. So we were a little nervous about uh, getting involved in the project at first. And, you know, I would write in the margins. We'd read the book and write in the mar margins. Well, that's interesting. And is that cinematic? And how do we do this? And we were interested in the um, pages on parenting and does good parenting matter? Um, you know, if your kid watches Baby Mozart, does he turn better out better than the kid who watches Looney Tunes, you know, and, and all these classes and all this um, over-parenting or under-parenting, not sure which, that it's happening right now. So we were interested in that subject. So we went actually and we spoke to um, Stephen Dubner first and then we spoke to Stephen Levitt and we said, Stephen, what are you doing right now? Are there any experiments that you're running that revolve around incentives or what are you doing right now that we could follow where you don't know how it's going to end? Will you let us follow your experiment? And he said, well, actually, we have access to the Chicago Heights uh, public school system and we're going to run an experiment over the next year where we're going to pay ninth graders to get good grades. And they put them in different groups as a control group. I won't bore you with the whole thing. Um, but basically, we thought that was intriguing. And he didn't know how it was going to turn out. And he said, it could be a total bust. could be a success, a failure. I don't care. I just want to find out. And, I, you know, I'm, if it doesn't work, we'll try something new. And I want to use my skills to try to improve the public school crisis. So come on, ladies. Do what you, you know, do what you do. And I thought that was very brave that he didn't really, you know, it wasn't one of those perfectly tied up in a bow things where he could say, see, it works. It was really an unknown that was exciting to us. So we set out to film over the course of many months. We chose two kids in the experiment. And uh, what happens in the end, I think, is, is interesting. I won't give it away. Rach? I think you covered it pretty good. <laughs> so, um, Seth Gordon, you were tapped with... Binding all of this together, essentially. Um, you directed the trailer, and you directed uh, key elements to this film that turned out really, really well, and it really holds the whole piece together. Um, if you could explain to the audience a little bit of, of what your role was and then how you, how you came to that, uh, to the decisions you made uh, on the, 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 little, the smaller stories you would tell to connect all of the other bigger stories. I felt like my role in the whole film was to help it seem real the entire time we were working on it. Uh, from the beginning with Chad, uh, you know, I, I don't like, I love the films of the filmmakers on this panel. It's actually very exciting to be here with everybody because their, their work is so good. Um, one of the phases of making this, the film seem real was cutting a trailer before we had a film. Um, which is a, an exercise that documentarians can do to stave off the fear of a lack of production. Um, and in this case, it just helped us all understand the thing. It was for me as much as for anybody, like, what are we doing? And it helped me understand it. Um, the, what I loved about the book, my parents are social scientists, but one thing that I love about the book is it isn't this lofty academic treatment of economics. It's a way of taking wonderful concepts and and... Uh, using anecdotes to allow everyone to sink their teeth into material they might not normally. And I thought that was, that was one of my roles, or what I could make my role in the movie, was to give a, some anecdotes that helped hold the, the different styles from the different documentarians together. It's why the movie's awesome, is because all these people have a different voice. And, but at the same time, we want to have a cohesive experience for everybody. So that uh, it, it, that was what I saw my the goal to be. So we uh, I just picked off little vignettes from the book that I loved, and the book actually has that structure too. These little tidbits. 
So one is on real estate and why real estate agents may or may not be shady. Another is on you know, the general notion of cheating, parenting. Um, anyway, you'll see the movie. And it's all meant to kind of to bring us back to he- home base or headquarters between the segments. So, the, uh, For those who may be wondering, the film, the film has distribution. It's been acquired by a company called Magnolia Pictures. Uh, Tom, do you have a release date yet? In, in the fall. So folks can see the movie this fall, and those listening on iTunes will be able to uh, do the same. Um, if I could, I could say one thing about Magnolia, and this, this may, may not have helped us during the negotiation process, but I will tell you I wanted it to go to Magnolia from day one. I don't know if they knew this, but uh, they are the perfect home for documentary films. Uh, I think uh, most of the filmmakers involved in Freakonomics had already had very happy experiences with Magnolia. Um, I, I've, this has probably already turned into too much of a love fest, so I, I won't devote too much more time to explaining why they're so good at what they do. Um, but there was no other distributor. As many talented dis- distribution companies as there are for this film, we really wanted to, to land in Magnolia, and we're thrilled they felt the same way. Congratulations. Um, let, me ask you, let me ask you all a question about... Um, what I what I took away from the movie after watching it, and I'm a you know I'm a big fan of of uh, Frontline and 60 Minutes and and you know harder news quote unquote programming. What I took away from this um, is the fresh way that information is conveyed, presented, um, dissected, um, and it, it made me sort of you know wish there were a, there were a weekly program that that presented information and ideas and and challenged an audience in such a way um what tell me what you guys think um anyone on the panel um what you think about um the state of news and information and and how it's uh how it's sort of uh changing adapting where it might go and what you were sort of thinking about as you were you know, deciding how to address some of these topics. Morgan Spurlock. I think um, when we first dove in, uh, myself and my producing partner, Jeremy Chilnick, who's leaning over there against the wall, when we first uh, started tackling, you know, ours, our chapter, the, the one thing we always try to do from the very beginning is we try and think, how can we make this accessible to the largest group of people? How can we make this information palatable? How do you make it digestible? How do you make it so... You know, you don't have to feel like you, you need a dictionary to, to break down something or you actually need to like use reference the book while you're watching it to understand what's actually happening. You know, we wanted to make it something that everyone from, you know, any educational level would be able to take something away from. And I think that the more you can do that, not in a sense of dumbing it down because we really don't dumb down the information, we just make it incredibly cohesive. We make it really easy to understand. And I think that if there's more programs that will do that, and I think there's been so much of a step towards dumbing down the news and dumbing down information on, on mainstream broadcasts, broadcasts that we've really missed an opportunity to educate people. And I think that a, a show on a weekly basis uh, would be incredible that would do that, that would make information like this truly, truly unique. I want to get to some questions from the audience. Uh, if you do have a question, we have, we're going to have to, we need to take a couple microphones from the, from the panelists, right? So, um, We'll take two microphones, and we'll send them around. So if you have a question, raise your hand. Can we start on that side, Matt? You want to start all the way over here on the end. Here we go. Hi. Good afternoon, panel. My name is uh, Sean Roman. And the beginning of the piece and the beginning of the book seems to me to be making somewhat of a political statement. So I would just like to know in terms of the writers, producers, directors, 
are all of you guys on the same side of the aisle, or is there some balance in terms of the writers, producers, and directors? We are all communists. We signed the oath walking in. Way over here on your left. Next question. Your left, my right. And actually, uh, one of the things we loved is we've tried to be as apolitical as possible and and still be true to the party. Chad's... (laughs) Obviously, a quote from a libertarian. Uh, this question is for, uh, for, I guess, for Morgan. At, at what point did you feel, in, the, in the, what point in this process, that this film was going to be something major? Was it going to be amazing? Um, <laughs> today? Uh, uh, this? This, this is, uh, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Is we still haven't even seen it. So, um, I mean, I think from it's amazing, from ours, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's amazing. We have yet to even see the movie. It's it's amazing when I see that. I think that for actually me, our strategy is if the movie's <laughs> terrible, we're gonna, all going to blame Alex Gibney. Yeah, yeah, it's true. That's our strategy. Uh, you know, for me, I think that the minute the minute I heard about it, I thought it was going to be something incredible. The more that I heard, as everybody started signing on, I was like, it's 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 unlike nothing I've ever ever been a part of or heard about. And I think the closer we've gotten to, to Tribeca, you know, the film's now going to also it's closing Tribeca, it's opening Silver Docks. You know, the more people I've talked to who've actually gotten to see it, you know, from within Magnolia and and, and within uh, you know the media, it's it's exciting. It's a you really, look how good the trailer is. Come on, when I saw the trailer, I was like, man, that movie looks good. <laughs> we have another question all the way to your right. Hi, this, uh, this question's for uh, Heidi and Rachel. I was wondering if you guys could talk a little bit about um, how you collaborate uh, on a piece, specifically this piece. Um, I know as a, as a director, oftentimes, you know, one of you would, would, might want one thing, one of you might want another. How, how do you guys end up working together to, to make it so wonderful? Well, uh, usually we um, go into the field together and we cast and figure out together what, what the story is and what the direction is and then we take turns because um, it's kind of it's inefficient for both of us to go and then we can kind of like uh, it, it's actually more helpful for one of us to watch the material later and uh, give, you know give the other person feedback and often you miss things when you're there as, as far as you think it may be better and it or it may be worse than you thought it was so um, and this one was this one we really enjoyed working on together because um, the, ki- the, the kids that we, we cast as our main characters were fabulous, so we, we had a great time. Let me, let me ask one, uh, a quick follow-up, and, and uh, before we take another question from the audience, I was just thinking um, about documentary filmmaking over the past decade, and I think that, that each of you, each of the filmmakers on this panel, each of the directors... Um, have made acclaimed, Oscar-nominated, Oscar-winning sometimes, work um, over the past decade. Um, docu- when, I, when I watch, I'm thinking about this, and again, I've just seen it like an hour and a half ago, so I'm really still kind of seeping in as I'm listening to you guys talk, and I'm thinking about how much documentary has changed over this, in, this, in this past 10 years, right? Um, I'm trying to understand why and how, and I wonder if any of you have thought about that um, because again, I use it's not a very film critic type word to use freshness, but there's 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 a lot of seriousness in these movies, but there's a lot of really clever, inventive work being done, cinematic work being done. Why has documentary changed, and how over the past ten years? Uh, 
I have no idea, but I'll, I'll take a whack at it. I, I, I think that the, you know, I think we'll look back at these last 10 years and think, what a renaissance of documentary form it has been, because there's never been, I don't think, a willingness to kind of so radically experiment with how to tell stories. Because you see not only a, a tremendous respect for reality, for the stuff that you observe, but also um, the willingness of authors to put themselves in the work and to show their personality in terms of the way they tell the story. And I think one of the reasons it happened was because we had come to a kind of dead end in terms of the sort of uh, monolithic nature, or not exactly monolithic, but, but cable television at a certain point had kind of channelized everything, where you could click along the viewer and you'd see this channel, it would be, you know, you'd know instantly that it was branded in that way. And everything had a kind of a corporate brand. But mysteriously, inexplicably, suddenly people started realizing, like Morgan's film, Super Size Me, um, was released in theaters and everybody went to see it because it was so fresh and uh, and it had a sense of personality and it was like the experience that you get when a nonfiction author speaks to the reader through a, a, a book. You're reading the facts but you're also hearing the voice of the author in a way that's so engaging and personal. So I think it, uh, it and then from there it's just flowered. So it's really an extraordinary moment and all of these filmmakers have just been um, so inventive and also very giving in terms of um, sh sharing something personal with the audience e even as they respect reality around them. I don't know, that's my view. Do you have anybody I'd like else to add to something to that? I also think that audiences expect more and they've been trained over the past decade or so to expect more. So um, filmmakers have to have their game up, first of all. And I think part of why they expect more is look where we're doing this today. I mean, we've been absolutely 100% saturated with information, stories. You have to, it has to be good or it'll disappear. Also, I think, sorry, Eugene. Um, I think at this, we'll look back and see this confluence, a perfect storm of things all lining up together, which is a frustration with conventional news and conventional media sources. We know that's true. Um, the uh, cheapening of technology, the easier access to technology from people that might not have had the means to make these films 20 years ago, which is also a testament to you know, what's going on here in the store. Also, the scourge and the... Uh, I guess, in the awesomeness of reality television, which has hurt us as filmmakers and helped us, frankly, as filmmakers, because people sitting down and watching, you know, regular people uh, or semi-regular people, uh, <laughs> the situation and things, um, live, their, live their lives and being interested in, in regular people, um, that's probably been good for us. It's hurt us in other ways that subjects think we want to, them to perform or they're going to get paid. And so there's, especially with young people, young subjects, you have to get through that. Like, oh, no, we're poor documentary filmmakers. You're not going to get a dime. But either am I, so it's all cool, you know. Uh, so I think that the, 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 that sort of confluence of factors um, has allowed this medium to flourish. I mean, I also just think there's a political dimension to all this, which is for the 10 years that were the Bush era, and the prelude to the Bush era in terms of how American politics was shifting rightward even during the Clinton era, I think documentary filmmakers found themselves in the Bush era dealing with all those shatterings of confidence in mainstream media, but there was a very Orwellian quality to what you could and couldn't say, and it meant that if you were 
if you were trying to make a living and a, being a journalist, you were being very frightened and being very repressed in your communications and I think doing a disservice to history. And if you were a courageous filmmaker willing to not make a living and not have a real prospect, you might be very, very animated in critiquing the Bush administration, as, as a lot of us were. But there's a new moment now, for good or for bad, with this new era, where you can take stock of things and you don't feel like what you're doing is a reaction one way or another to a repressive American regime. You're much more just saying, what do I think of this apple and is the inside of it an orange? And you can have a whimsy in your inquiry about the human condition that isn't just 24-7 about the news cycle, which is failing you. Right now, I mean, John Stewart covers most of our subjects better than we do every night. And so that liberates me to, like, take up a hobby, you know. And that's what's happening, I think, in a film like this. I, it, it makes me want to issue a challenge to our audience, and, and you know, I edit IndieWire. Um, anybody who wants to write an essay on the confluence of, of George Bush and reality television and how they've informed the past ten years of documentary filmmaking, I would love to read that article. Um, Morgan. George Bush, reality TV. The intersection has created... Sounded like eight years of reality TV already. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I'm a big believer that reality television and, uh, and politics push people towards uh, documentary film. I think that documentary films became one of, the, one of the real last bastions of a place where you could express something unique and different that weren't, wasn't under the guise of like one of the five media companies that control the majority of what we get to see and hear and read on a daily basis. So I think that... Uh, you know, that the, the fuse was lit, and I think it's going to continue to go for a long time now. I think that the, the door's been open, and it's a great thing. All right, let me get some more, some more questions from the audience. Right over here on okay. your far here left again. Then. I was just wondering, um, when, obviously, filming this and looking up, did you find anything about yourself which made you a bit uncomfortable? Like you said, oh, there's theories of how you act, and that creates a reaction. Did you find something about yourself and feel a bit uncomfortable about that? Like, oh, that would explain why I do that sort of thing. I think that's a no. <laughs> well, I, I, I didn't finish the film until like yesterday, which is a character flaw of procrastination. Um, I, I think I know where you're going, though. There, I think for, for anyone, there are revelatory moments in the book, things that uh, there are sociological questions that are posed. And, and although I think both Stephen Dubner and Steve Levitt are quick to say well, aren't, we, we're better at posing questions than we are at providing answers. I, I think that's just modesty. Um, so I think there are a lot of self-revelatory moments for any of the readers, and maybe that's why so many people connected with the book. And uh, I hope that we can help you relive those moments and expose all the, the film goers to new moments of, of, of self-revelation. I think the entire book and probably all the films address uncomfortable things. That's why the book, one, one of the reasons the book was so popular, it was, it, there's an awkwardness as you're reading and you're, you, you think you understand the human condition and then you say, are we so crass? You know, I mean, even making this film, I was half hoping, I'm like, really? If you pay a kid $500 a month, that's going to solve the education, like, he'll just go home and study, he can be bought, it's that easy? And I was, I was kind of thinking, I hope not, or, or I hope so, because that'd be good, because then they'll do well, but is that, is that really all we're about? So I think that, that I, I personally encountered those feelings and thoughts while making our segment. I don't, I don't know about the rest of you guys. But. Yeah, I mean, I think in, in terms of cheating, one of the things I discovered was how easy it is. Uh, it, one of the peculiar things about cheating in sumo wrestling 
is that sometimes you cheat for the common good. In other words, uh, wrestlers make deals sometimes to help each other out if they're about to fall out of the upper rank, which seemed an interesting concept to me. But it also made me realize there are times when you think, well, maybe I'll just bend the rules a bit because it's, it's kind of better. There's a higher good that I'm serving here. And you realize what the slip, slippery slope is. And so that was very revealing to me. Also, after, after shooting all that sumo wrestling, I, I went on a diet. So that was also very, <laughs> very revealing. We have another question all the way over here on your right. Yeah, my question is for the uh, filmmakers. Uh, could you talk about um, the, the segments that you made and what surprised you most about how you planned out your segment and, and how it ended up? And also, did you have a time limit for your segment? Was there a time limit? Did you give them time limits on... on... I broke through the barrier. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, I think the filmmakers all looked at those time limits as a personal challenge to defy. <laughs> Some by how, how short a segment can I deliver and still create something magic? Or how long a segment can I deliver without... You told us 20 it? minutes, and we gave you 20 minutes. I didn't know we could uh, yeah, cheat. I, mean, I, that was, that so, was, well, I didn't know episode, we could cheat, Alex. My episode is about cheating. My episode is about cheating. Man. That's, that's, uh, it, was, it, was, it was part of the film. The women on the panel, we obeyed the rules, I'd like to say. The timing rules. We came in right at 20 minutes. Let's, let's try to get to a few more questions. Yes. Over here. Hey, um, I think one of the things the book does uh, that's important up front is, is ask that question about are we, are we just asking questions or providing answers? And I think whether it tries to or not, I think the book has a very authoritative <laughs> voice. And you're all talking about accessibility and stuff like that. And I think, did you have concerns that you're making something increasingly acceptable or accessible, sorry, that, uh, that then might seem like the whole truth on, on certain topics. Is it, did you worry about being too authoritative? That's a good question. Did you worry about being too authoritative? I, I will say this. Um, I want to really, be really careful how I word this. Um, elitism can be a real turnoff, right? Um, but I will, I will say that in the back of my mind, <laughs> but I want to say in the back of my mind, I wanted to bet on people that I thought were very smart filmmakers. And the idea was is that if we push to be as accessible as possible, I would trust that <clears throat> extraordinarily bright people would have limitations on, on how much they would uh, bury complexity for the sake of simplicity. So uh, if we did this right, we've struck the perfect balance of dealing with really challenging and really interesting material in a way that a wide variety of people can both understand and appreciate. And uh, you know, that, that was the goal from the very beginning, and it was a guiding principle in the directors, the filmmakers that we selected work on this, on, this, on this project. And I will tell you, it's one of the reasons why we all trusted Seth Gordon so much. Un understand, this isn't a guy who, who just put together the pieces between the segments. Um, it's, this is a collaborative effort, but he, he's the orchestrator of the film. Uh, he, he, his, the material that, he, that, will go, that is on screen is, is as much screen time as any of the individual segments. Uh, he explored individual topics, including one of, the, one of a lot of our favorite topics, which is you know, the real estate agency uh, incentives and, and how they may not be in the favor of the, the customer, the client, I should say. And so uh, it, with all these steps, I tried to go with people that I thought had a, had a commercial sensibility but were incredibly bright and uncompromising. So I know that's long-winded, but it was, that's actually a very important question. <clears throat> I, never, I never feared at all that my, my segment would come across as too authoritative. Um, 
that's nowhere near a fear. But I did think that the book had to be handled very carefully because both Stephen and Steve went out of their way to play a very careful role as marshalers of information, not overly self-righteous, not overly self-sure. And very, you know, if you watch interviews, for example, with both of them after the book came out and they were being challenged on some of the more, you know, uh, contentious points in the book, they were very careful to make it clear that life is a work in progress and that they're fact finders and concluders. And I remember watching one interview with both of them where they were both like, yeah, we got that one wrong. And it's great that that person pointed it out. Now that'll become a new stepping stone in the dialogue. So arguably, if we've done our work right, these little movies are new stepping stones on the dialogue that they initiated. Yeah, I, I would just add that I, I think that what's clear from watching the all the segments is that you know all these filmmakers approached this material with um, real thoughtfulness and humility, uh, and I think respect for what for for the integrity of what the authors were doing. And uh, and there's not I don't I don't think in my view, although you know it would be interesting to see what everybody thinks after seeing the film. I don't think there's a lot of, um, or really any at all, editorializing going on in any of the segments. Uh, there's a lot of information, there's a lot of context and analysis and interpretation, but I don't think, uh, I don't think anyone might mistake any of these segments as trying to pass itself as the authority on any of that subject matter. And actually, we, we filmed an experiment that Levitt was actually doing. And I think, I, I thought he was really brave because it, he was totally exposing himself. It, you know, the experiment could totally bomb. And he didn't have a problem with that because um, I, I think some scientists do have a problem with that. And they want their theories to be correct. But I think he, uh, from what we discussed with him, that you learn as much from your failures as your success as a scientist. So, um, you know, he, he was like an open book. So I don't think it comes off that way. Yeah, well, and I, I also think that's one of the reasons why the original book was so successful and why this film succeeds kind of on a whole other level is because they were really trying to get to the truth. Uh, you know, they were looking at mounds and mounds of data. They were looking at uh, kind of a whole bunch of different information and genuinely trying to get to the truth. And uh, each of these filmmakers then took it to another level. They each have a way of getting to the truth through their art, uh, each a very different way. And uh, they took the, the information that was available in the book and, and to me took it to an, an entirely different level of truth. I think when you watch this, you, you see that this is a, a very genuine attempt to explain the world around us. And... Uh, and everybody does it in their own way. And, and, and that's why I think maybe you having just seen this film coming out of it, what we began talking about was, was the importance of documentary in general. Because I, I think that you know, people these days are, are yearning for some sort of analysis. What we're missing a lot of times is you know, we're hearing sound bites, we're hearing a 24-hour news cycle, we're hearing little bits of information. Not a lot of people are, are sort of drilling down on things and providing that analysis that's both accessible... And going for the truth, it's non-dogmatic. It's not, it doesn't have an agenda. And, and I, I really think that that's why the book was successful. I don't think it had a, a sort of dogmatic agenda or an idealistic agenda at all. And I think this film does the same thing. And that's why I think people like it. 
We have time for two more oh, questions. I wanna, have, actually wanted to let uh, Stephen Dubner oh, uh, respond. Sorry. Um, so I would say one uh, one kind of kind of answer to your question about uh, it doesn't actually actually it doesn't specifically answer your question about authoritativeness, but I think it does answer a question about how material nonfiction material in general is received by a readership or an audience, and that's um, and this speaks to Eugene's piece in the film into the abortion uh, section in the book. When Levitt and a fellow named John Donahue, who Eugene referred to earlier, who is a legal scholar, uh, who's now at uh, Yale, um, was then at UFC with Levitt, uh, when they first did this uh, analysis of abortion and crime, it was uh, posted on a website, and this was a while ago, so not all of us were going to websites regularly then, but it was posted on an academic conference website where you upload your papers so the other people who are coming into this conference can read the papers before they get there. And an enterprising reporter from, I think, the Chicago Tribune got onto the website and saw this paper that said, legalized abortion lowers crime. And that reporter went, holy shit, this is a great story. And that reporter, I think, did quite a good job, contacted Leva and or Donahue, and wrote up a fairly straightforward article about this finding. But it was a newspaper article done in a hurry, and it had a fairly inflammatory headline like, Abortion Kills Crime. And within about uh, 24 hours, Levitt had stopped answering his phone and actually to this day really doesn't answer his phone very much because every crazy on any side of any debate that you could possibly imagine was wanting to put a knife through his heart because of the way that this very jarring, very controversial and very weirdly utilitarian argument that was a, it was a utilitarian argument about a subject that we're used to dealing not with in utilitarian terms but in moral terms and legal terms and religious terms and it got moved into this whole other realm and people flipped out understandably when I uh, so I wrote an article about Levitt uh, years ago which is how the collaboration started then when it came time for the book even when I wrote the article about him I didn't plan on giving the abortion thing that much room because it had been rehearsed in the press so much um, but that's the way journalists think. We think that if it's been in the Times, everybody's read it, and of course we're always wrong. Then when it came time to write the book, we were talking about it, and, and we thought very seriously about not writing about the abortion crime thing, because anybody who would bother to read a book like this, which we figured were very few people, would have already heard the abortion crime argument. We should leave it out. We ended up putting it in when we figured out a way to build a bigger chapter about crime and why crime fell and so on. But then when it came time to write the abortion story, the abortion crime story, and we added things about Nikolai Ceausescu, which is really done beautifully in the film and so on, we wrote a whole chapter on it. And when you write a chapter in a book, you have an opportunity to lay out the argument differently. You have an, you have an opportunity to float every straw man and knock it down, to float every possible objection, to float every uh, a piece of evidence that might add up to why this theory might be true, and then challenge them individually and make sure, you know, make sure the reader understands why you're saying what you're saying. And then above all, to say, even if you think that abortion is the greatest crime-fighting tool ever invented, which is an absurd suggestion and not one we make, then let's look at the efficacy and see how many abortions it actually takes to lower crime. And in this way, you'll could, you could argue that abortion as a crime-fighting tool is just wildly inefficient. When we made the argument in the book, we got very little flack from people on left or right or anywhere, so much to the point that Levitt once did an interview with um, Pat Robertson on uh, The 700 Club, is that the show? And Dee Dee, actually, who's here, Dee Dee from the publishing company got the request for Levitt to go on this show, and she turned it down for him because she was so sure it would be a disaster. Then Levitt, who's a, a, a lovable lunatic, said, no, I think that'd be really fun. So he went on the Pat Robertson show, and here's Pat Robertson. He says, so if I understand what you're saying correctly, 
uh, Rudy Giuliani and Bill Bratton talking about how the New York City crime miracle was because of better innovative policing was not that big a driver, but that legalized abortion had a big effect. Is that, is, am I understanding that right? And they said, yeah, that's, you've explained it exactly right. And, and then Pat Robertson, you know, I always saw that Giuliani took too much credit for crime in New York City. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking to the side because I know we're running tight on time. So we're going to do two more quick... That's amazing. Two more quick questions. Uh, so we'll go... Right in yes, the back. All yep. the back. Hi there. I guess utilitarianism is a pre-answer to the question I was going to ask, but I'm more arbitrarily now con- uh, interested in how Morgan and Eugene might answer this, just on your personalities. When you meet someone, whether it's on the street or via an audience... Uh, in a movie theater, what's the first thing you think that I must do this to capture their attention and really make them think to themselves, oh, I need to listen to what this guy is saying. What is it that you do? I try to figure out what Morgan would do in copy it. <laughs> I mean, well, it's you're asking Morgan and me, which is a good, a good way to do it, because we do it, I would say, rather differently, and I really admire the way he reaches people, and I think he reaches a wider audience than I do, and the way in which he does that, he's got a special knack for doing that without screwing up the material. Because usually, like when you try to go really wide with something, you know, you dilute it. My godfather always used to tell me if 10 people sit around a table and one of them has a 40 IQ, you're all going to end up talking about baseball. I mean, no offense (laughs) to baseball, but, you know, and the idea is that you tend to be sensitive to the lowest common denominator. So you don't want to make something too highbrow. And I never want to do that, but I tend to take on really hard subjects. And then I do try to figure out a lot what I think comes very naturally to Morgan. Morgan goes out to figure out what's wrong with the food supply, and he doesn't end up making a complicated, heady, you know, bottom-heavy sort of clunky piece about the food supply. He ends up taking on the thing we know and love, you know, the supersize. So it's like that's something his I think his mind does in the same way that he's like that with people. He's going to touch somebody very openly and very quickly and reach them in a very palpable way. And I take much, you know, there's like two types of dish soap and they both get the dishes done, but one's harder on your hands. I'm a little harder on the hands. <laughs> and I'm like Paul Molive, like you're soaking in it it's right Paul now. Paul Molive. Yeah. <laughs> Can you feel it? Yeah, that's right. The, uh, the, thing that, the thing that we always try to do whenever, you know, whenever I, I'm directing something is we always try to make sure that throughout the, the material that we try and always bring it back to something humorous and something that because in the saddest and most difficult and the hardest things there's still always some piece of, of humor that's in there and I think if you can make somebody laugh you can make somebody listen I think that literally the walls will come down and you can find an accessibility to people very quickly and very easily so I think that one of the things we try to do is really try and find um, you know, something that will find some sort of a, a funny line a funny bone within a piece because I think that really helps you connect with people in the, in the quickest possible way Yes, last question right here. Hi, uh, my name's Alana Hoffman, and as a filmmaker myself, I'm curious what it was like working from a book and what kind of research you usually do before starting a project and just where you get your inspiration as filmmakers. Well, we get our inspiration... um, everywhere eavesdropping on other people's conversations you know reading uh listening to the radio i mean but you know we really ask ourselves the the question should this be an article in the new yorker should this be this american life or should this be for the discovery channel or should this be a feature-length documentary film because 
It's easy to make that mistake. I'm so interested in this subject. This is a good topic. But, you know, sometimes it's not right for a film. And I think I kind of addressed this a little bit earlier. We were concerned uh, in terms of our style of, of how to take ideas that were fascinating and great to talk about at a cocktail party, um, but how to make that into a film that you guys would want to watch. So, uh, and we, we always ask ourselves and police ourselves and say, well, who, how, wh play the tape. How's it going to go? What are we going to shoot? Where are they going to, I mean, you know, can this person carry a film? Are they the same on camera? Um, and off camera, are they the same person? Are they performing? And we we do character driven pieces, so we really have to go out there, start with an idea, and then go cast it and find it and cast it and cast it and meet more people, and then you know it when you see it, and you say that's it. That this person could carry a film. This is a story, and we have to be interested in it because sometimes it takes years to make these films. If we're going to lose, if it's if our attention spans are going to wane, we don't make the film. It has to be something burning and fascinating to us. Anyone else want to want to speak to that? Speak to what inspires you, what draws you to a project, or or is it is it too hard to sort of boil it down in that way? I mean, I usually get onto a project because I have some, you know, very passionate feeling about a social sub subject, usually about social justice, mm -hmm. one kind or one form or another. And then, I mean, the interesting process that is always the most rewarding, both for yourself and also for your movie is that whatever, and Alex often quotes this line by Marcel Ophels, where Ophels said, of course my films have a point of view, but I always go to great lengths in the film to show how difficult it is. What does he say? How hard it is to get to that point of view. How hard it is to get to that point of view, which is to say he shows just how textured and how complicated the landscape is that he's operating in. So if you start out with an idea or a research that you've done and it's produced a passionate conclusion, if a year later that's what comes out in your movie, it's probably going to be a pretty bad movie. Whereas if the movie a year later shows a whole bunch of struggle you've gone through to really reckon with the countervailing arguments and how life is never that simple, but it's still, like if you can say life is not as simple as I thought, but my passion has withstood that challenging dialectic, um, I think you end up with a courageous piece. What can happen though is you can get bludgeoned into a place where you literally are like, I don't really feel the way I felt at the beginning. And if that's true, you ought to make that movie too, because that's an unbelievable evolution to capture on screen. It's like having a breakdown on screen, but it makes good, good, good box office. Um, we are out of time because these folks have a movie that's premiering in about an hour or less than an hour the clock's ticking thank you for joining us and for those of you who can stick around for those of you who don't have a movie premiering in an hour um, French filmmaker Jean-Pierre Jeunet uh, who directed Amelie and has a new film called Mick Max will be on this stage in a half hour to talk about his new movie so thank you again for joining us